2: Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th wartime diary. This week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Tal and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, so, if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. What's your name, Chuchu? <laughs> okay. That's my little niece, who at just a year and a half might be a tiny bit too young for her Israel story debut. What are you whispering?
3: do say your name. What's
0: your name? A, B, C, D, E,
2: A, T. Her name is Sol.
0: Say Sol. Mao. Mao.
2: That's Sol's mom, Yael, my sister in law. Yael, how do you spell Sol's name? S O L. And why was she named Sol?
0: She was born really early in the morning, so she was uh, came out with the sun. Uh, and uh, we felt she's marking like a new day. And uh, So
2: it was Sol for the sun?
0: Sol for the sun, yes. You like your name?
2: I joined Sol for her dinner.
0: <laughs> what do you like, Sol? What do you want to eat?
2: Sol, what do you love to eat the most? Apple. <laughs> Apple. Do you like eating apples? Yeah. Wait, let's get some help here from your from your brother and sister, okay? Shaizi and A B, what does so like to eat the most?
0: Cookies, ice cream, pasta, pasta. oatmeal. Oatmeal? Yeah. And very, very much bananas. Bah. Banana? Banana? Yeah.
2: Okay, what else? Milk. Milk from ima? Yeah. Or from cows? From Ima. Sol, what do you want to eat?
0: What do you want? Tzitzi. <laughs> That's what she loves the most. Tzitzi.
2: Sol, are you drinking some milk? <laughs> hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by Tablet Magazine and the Jerusalem Foundation. And after joining Sol for her food, we can now dive into our episode, Sol Food. While we won't be sampling fried okra, collard greens, or macaroni and cheese, we will hear two stories about two women for whom soul, life, and food are all completely intertwined.
4: We're ready? We're ready? Kimchi, it's such an art. Everybody should make their own kimchi, as they like.
2: A few years ago, we had an idea to create a four-part mini-series in the four quarters of Jerusalem's Old City.
4: Red pepper powder, the fresh garlic. The mini-series
2: itself never materialized, at least not yet. But we did come across some incredible tales. And like most good stories, they led us down winding paths and in all kinds of unexpected directions. But none led us quite as far as this one. It's easy. Which starts at the Seoul House, a kosher Korean restaurant in the heart of the Jewish corridor.
4: Actually, that's my favorite part of the cooking, like a therapeutic. That's
2: Tsipora, the owner of the restaurant.
4: Well, I have many names. Korean name is Bongja. They call me BJ. Bongja means like daughter of a phoenix. So when I convert, I asked, um, what is a bird in Hebrew? They said the bird in Hebrew is the Tsipora, and the female bird is Tsipora. I said, that's my name. So I keep all my names. So basically my legal name and passport is like a Bungja Tsipora Kim (laughs) Rothkoff. And if there's one thing Bungja Tsipora
2: Kim Rothkoff loves to talk about... It's food.
4: Think about it. What's going to your mouth? You become what you eat. And when you eat good food, you're healthy, you feel good, you know. Yeah, I think food is very important. The Korean food, I don't know whether you eat. Korean food is a very different food. Very different from all other food, you know. And it's very fermented. Takes a lot of time. My sauce takes about a year. The soy sauce, real soy sauce, is just the beans with the salt and water, they ferment.
2: At first, we thought this would be a sweet and curious little culinary story, but it quickly turned out to be an international tale of fate, trauma, identity, and well, also kimchi. Here's Yochai Metal with Act One, Soul Food. That's
3: soul. S-E-O-U-L.
4: So you're going to ask me questions or I'm just going to talk?
3: Um, maybe take me through your day. How do, you, how do you start your day?
4: I get up very early in the morning. I get up like 4, 4.30 and then go to a hotel. And then I daven with the uh, minyanim, the holy people. And the first minyan, which is called the nitz. Mm. Yeah, that's when Hashem is most uh, merciful for us. And that's where we ask, request, daven, you know, praise. And that's how my day starts. After I finish visiting Hashem, I feel like I have done my day. And from now on, it's all just a fun and all just a bonus day, you know. So nothing really bothers, you know what I mean? It's a whole different headspace. And you do davening in an early in the morning. And uh, you start day early, it's like uh, instead, the life is writing you, you are writing the life.
3: Instead of life writing you, you are writing the life. Sipora told me that sentence the very first time we met, more than two years ago, and somehow it stayed with me. I can't get it out of my head. I keep on wondering am I writing the life? I don't think so at least not like Tsipora, that's for sure. Like most people, I've basically taken what life has given me. I was born into a certain family, a certain culture, a certain religion, gender, nationality, and that pretty much dictates who and what I am. But, well, that is not Tsipora's story.
4: I was born in South Korea, 1947. My childhood, I was a very active child, very curious, and I just wanted to find new things.
3: What was Korea like back then?
4: Well, for instance, I went to, like, a primary school, and each class was, like, 85 kids and one teacher. And we can hear the pin drop. And we're very disciplined and very clean. We cleaned our windows and floors and shining, and we cleaned our school classrooms. We were very trained.
3: And did you have any brothers and sisters?
4: I had one brother who passed away several years ago. And uh, I have six sisters. So it's like all together, seven daughters, one son. And uh, my brother was not like a strong one. We were very strong, rather but he was a son, so he got all the special treat. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's Korea. I don't know. Oh yeah, a lot of chauvinism. Like if you're a woman and I end up buying a house or something, the purchase tax will be like five, six times more on women, like uh, discouraging women to go out. Today's different story. I am already 70 some, so you know, I'm talking about old, old times. And uh, we went through tough times. In first pictures from Seoul, following the pre-dawn military coup that over There's a coup, the 1960. Government. Troops guard public buildings in the
2: early hours of martial law, proclaimed by the And Army I
4: never and really knew about these things, you know, the government to seize and the militaries is all over and then fire burning in the corners and barricades and stuff like that. I was a little kid. The
2: battle against communism and poverty.
4: And uh, one day, I just saw like my father, five, six people carrying him in a stretcher into the house, and he found out that he almost died. They they beaten up so much, like his bones all broken, and, and miracle that he survived. And I remember almost almost whole year he was bedridden.
3: What about your mother?
4: I was very close to my mom. Yeah, she was always in my heart. She was always right there to do what she can, rather than, like, judging or telling me what to do, not to do. You know, she had believed in me. My mother was a great singer. She wanted to be a singer. But back then, when she was growing up, they don't let their, you know, daughters to become singer or public entertainer. It's not respectable.
3: Would she sing to you?
4: Oh, yeah, she... She actually sang like uh, until almost as uh, she passed away. Can you can you, can you <laughs> just like taste it? Hey, Ah, I have a couple of things that I love to sing. Yeah. Usually I don't sing in front of men. All my sisters are great singers. Whenever I visit my sisters and we all drink like crazy, you know, beers and stuff. And then we go to karaoke. We just sing along and dance along. There's nobody there, just, just girls, you know, us.
3: By the mere fact that we met in Jerusalem's old city, you can already guess that Zipporah's story is full of unexpected twists and turns. But her life actually started off in a pretty mundane, even cliché manner. Right after high school, she went to college, where she majored in what was considered to be a respectable female subject, home economics. And it was there, as a
4: sophomore, that she fell in love with a college jock. He was a quarterback in the... uh university team for the American football. And uh, he was very popular, six foot tall, dream guy, you know. After graduation, they
3: got married and had two kids, a son and a daughter. Things were seemingly good. But soon, cracks started forming.
4: Well, there are times that he would not come home.
3: And when he would finally show up, he was always ready with a story.
4: I had a fight in a marketplace, and I ended up going to uh, police. And then I stayed there at night, something like that. I wanted to believe it. And one day, I wanted to really find out
3: whether it's true. She marched over to the local police station and asked the attending officer about the so-called big brawl in the market.
4: There was such a fight last night in a marketplace, you know.
3: Her suspicions confirmed she now had to face what was actually going on.
4: I felt like my foothold was just wide open, falling, and I was crying. How this life that I live is such a lie. I knew that... This marriage is broken because there's no trust. We already had two kids, and they were little babies, and um, really destroyed my whole uh, the value of life. I did not want to live.
3: For two very long years, as they were trying to negotiate the terms of their separation, the couple still lived together, sleeping in separate rooms.
4: And then one day, he came in and became very violent, started beating all of us. My kids were trying to, to pick up the phone in the other room. My ex just picked her up with one hand and threw her. She escaped. It was already midnight. She called my mother... So my mother came with my brother. They came, and they took me away. It was very violent. He was drunk. But you know what? Now I look back, I look at it differently.
3: In, In what way?
4: Well, you hear that anybody who converts to Judaism, that they have a Jewish soul to be born with. If I had a Jewish soul... And then this is a Korean body. And I'm married to this guy. How am I ever gonna be returning to be a Jew? Really, think about it. He himself is a victim in a way.
3: Was getting divorced shameful?
4: Oh yes, big shame. I had never really failed anything. I was just very very successful.
3: As a divorced woman within a highly patriarchal society, She felt the entire legal system was set against her.
4: The guys get the kids. There's no custody. They just take them. And then you're at their mercy to see them. My daughter and my son were in in a grip of my ex and his mother, and they would not let me see them. He said, if you want to walk out on me, you have to walk out with nothing. That's how bad it became. I signed off everything to him, if that's the only way, he's gonna let me go. When I signed it all off, I said to him, you got all you wanted. You wanted the kids, so you wanted the money, you wanted a house, everything. I'm starting with nothing, and you start with everything. We'll see one day, yeah. I'd rather let sell a little apple on the street, be proud to live, than living like this and lie That's not a place where I wanted to be. I was 32 years old.
3: Not being able to see her children drove her mad.
4: Almost every night, I used to wake up crying.
3: In the morning, she would sneak over to their school just to get a glimpse of them through the
4: fence. And when they see me, they would run away. They were so scared of their father. And then I realize this is unbearable. If I live far away, it would probably easier. They're right here, then I can't even talk to them. In
3: 1979, Tsipora, then still Boongja Ja, or BJ, made the impossible decision to leave Korea.
4: My whole family came out to the airport. All my sisters, all my brother-in-laws, and my mother. Everybody, 20-some people came to the airport, say goodbye. Could you believe it? The flight was like uh, from Seoul to New York, takes about 19 and a half hours. And I did not sleep.
3: When she landed in the U.S., she was penniless and alone, not knowing what else to do. She answered a job listing in Vegas, which specifically looked for young Korean women.
4: Like in a way, hookers. They find rich Korean gamblers, and then they recruit them to their hotel. And then they give everything free. The drink, women, the drug, who knows what. I didn't know any of these things. But I ended up going to uh, Las Vegas because this very powerful guy said he can help me with a working visa. And, you know, you're so pretty. You're this and that.
3: She was put up in a casino hotel and quickly put to work.
4: I go there and I'm finding it's like these people are... Very weird to me. You know, this is not good for me.
3: After just five days, she realized her mistake and tried to quit. But her boss told her that she had to settle her tab at the hotel before she could go. He knew she didn't have any money, so he suggested an alternative. Come over to my place, he told her. Clean my house and prepare a nice home-cooked Korean meal for me. Then, unsurprisingly, he casually slipped in the fact that he was separated.
4: I was so broken. I felt like that people can just step on me. Just because I'm a divorced and single woman. Just, I'm nobody.
3: She grabbed her few belongings and literally ran out into the desert.
4: Las Vegas was so dark. This was behind the MGM or something. It was like a desert. And I was crying, I said, I'm going to go back to Korea. This is not for me.
3: She took a taxi to a dingy airport motel. The next morning, weighing her options over a tepid cup of coffee, she realized that going back wasn't really in the cards. She didn't have enough money for a return ticket. So instead, she opened the yellow pages and started making phone calls. To her surprise, she managed to land an interview to be a blackjack dealer at the Sahara Hotel.
4: They gave me audition and five guys, six guys in front of me playing with a two-deck. And I won all of them, (laughs) and they said, you're hired. (laughs) And later on, I found out that they love Korean uh, women dealers, young. And that's how I got the job.
3: Growing up in a traditional Buddhist household in Seoul, she could have never imagined that she'd end up in a smoky casino in Vegas, dealing cards to inebriated clients but she enjoyed her job and she was good at it too. Then a few weeks in, she got an unexpected call. A close childhood friend from Korea had moved to New York. She was both expecting a child and getting a divorce. And she asked Boongja if she might be able to come help out with the new baby. The friend was calling from a payphone, so her husband wouldn't hear. She sounded absolutely desperate.
4: I said to her, stop crying. I'm coming in. I just got a new job. But I'll tell them there's some family problems and I need to go take care of it. I'll take a two weeks break. So I got tickets and I came. I still remember I paid $650. My money.
3: (laughs) She moved in with her friend and started helping out. One day, she was in the basement doing a load of laundry when an Orthodox Jew walked in.
4: With a sack of, uh, you know, laundry. And um, I thought he was like, it looks like a Jesus or somebody. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I never knew about the Jewish, you know. He looks like a Jesus. He has a beard, you know, stuff like that. So I guess it's a, there's a certain first sight, you know, feelings. Really? Yeah, just the laundry room, you know, like Moshe Rabbeinu, Zipporah Yemenu, They all met a well. This is like a well. <laughs> Think about it. You know, I was in my trouble, but when I transcend from my trouble and go in to help somebody else, there Hashem is helping you. I said all the time to people, if you feel like you're in trouble, okay, look around, see who you can help. I shall not help you by you helping other people. That's my uh, life lesson, yeah.
3: Bungja's original plan was to make it in America and then return to Korea with enough money and stability to fight to get her kids back. Falling in love was never part of the plan. But, well... We had uh,
4: amazing feelings for each other.
3: They couldn't have been more different. Moshe, who had just finished medical school, grew up in a religious family on the Lower East Side. And Bungja, well, soon after that faithful laundry room meeting, she returned to the blackjack tables in Vegas. But they kept in touch and wrote each other letters.
4: And one day, I'm dealing... I see this guy sitting there, his Moshe is sitting there in Las Vegas, in my table, with $100. I said, what are you doing here? I said, you're not gonna have that $100 in five minutes, you know, stop playing, <laughs> go away from my table.
3: An invisible force was at play, stronger than both of them, stronger than their upbringing, stronger than thousands of years of Halakhic tradition.
4: So we had a romance, and we started being serious. And um, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't that simple, because I was a uh, non-Jew. And his, his parents are survivors. His mom is from Auschwitz. She had two sons and husband, and they all perished. His father from Buchenwald. And they had uh, scars.
3: Moshe's parents simply weren't able to accept his choice.
4: Parents disowned him, they slapped him, you know, big rubs and rebbis, and they tried to bribe him.
3: But in many ways, these difficulties actually brought Bung ja and Moshe closer together.
4: One of the reasons that I really loved him is because the way they dealt with his parents. You know, his parents were off the wall. His mother would come to his examining room, no appointments, with a knife on her neck, She's threatening him that if you don't listen to me, you know, I'm gonna kill myself, like kind of thing. And then at the same time, she would have come up with all this uh, jewelry boxes and something. And I said, if you just leave her, I'll give you this. You know, it's like a desperation. And all this time, I wish they met me. If you meet somebody, you'd start talking about things. It's a lot of uh, barriers can be just. Removed. It's just that when you don't know people, it's very easy to hate.
3: And they wouldn't meet you?
4: They wouldn't. Listen, I know what they went through. How could they love going after what they went through? Not easy. And I can understand that. Really, I do. I felt bad for them.
3: But she wasn't willing to give up on this relationship.
4: Through the divorce and everything, I don't trust any more people doggy-doggy world, you take whatever you can, you know?
3: Meeting Moshe had suddenly turned life sweet again.
4: It was like, oh, feels right.
3: To better understand his world, she began going to Torah and Judaism classes. For her, it was a revelation.
4: Once you started learning and practicing, you just feel the healing is on the way. In
3: 1981, she converted and took the name Zipporah. Shortly thereafter, she and Moshe got married. Their wedding was a small affair, attended by only a handful of people. Moshe's family didn't show up.
4: It was very close friends who knew really what's going on with us. I cooked for my wedding because we didn't have money. I made our first kosher Korean, so that was good.
3: Moshe was a young doctor at the time, about to complete his residency in ophthalmology at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. As he was contemplating his next career move, he ran into a colleague who was on his way to interview for a position at a military hospital in Hawaii. Wanting to put some distance between himself and all the complications his new life choices had brought about, Moshe spontaneously asked his friend,
4: Would you mind if I go too? (laughs) He said, go ahead, there's 250 other people and there's one job. So, So Moshe ended up actually getting that job all Hashem, really. It's all Hashem.
3: But alongside the good news of his acceptance came some very bad news. Moshe's father was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer.
4: They live like maybe two weeks, three weeks, maybe four weeks. Goes like that. Very fast pancreas cancer. Moshe would f- started feeling so bad leaving his father and then moving to Hawaii. Meantime, the Hawaii going crazy. We need you right here now.
3: Not knowing what to do, Moshe and Zipporah decided to consult their rabbi, Shlomo Karlibach.
4: So we mentioned to Shlomo about what we were going through. And uh, he said, you know, this is big. This is too big for me. You need to go to a big, big rabbi's, big rabbi's to get a bracha. That's what Shlomo said.
3: He sent them to one of his rabbis, the Rebnitzer Rebbe.
4: Rebnitzer Rebbe was like a very unknown mystical rabbi, old Rebbe from Russia. And he lived in Muncie.
3: The couple boarded a late-night bus. It
4: was like a midnight because he only sees people midnight on.
3: But when they got to the Rebbe's office, he wasn't there.
4: It just happened that night was the Rebnitzer Rebbe's Rebbe's yurt So he's not seeing anybody, and he's just fabringing with his chassidim.
3: Moshe went into the synagogue and started elbowing his way through a mob of dancing and singing chassidim, all the way towards the Rebnitzer Rebbe.
4: But when he finally got close enough, he saw that the old Rebbe had... (sighs) He just fell asleep. Meantime, me, I couldn't go into that man's place. So I'm like standing outside in the, by the kitchen. I'm standing there and it's dark and rainy. And somebody tapping my, you know, on my shoulder. She said, Who are you? So I said, Who are you? <laughs> she says, I'm Rebnitzin. <laughs>
3: the old Rebnitzin, Rebbe's
4: wife. Rebnitzin was young. The Rebbe was like 90 years old and she's like 40, 50 years old. She said, What's traveling you? So I said, you know, I just got married and we like my father-in-law.
3: Sipora told the Rebbe's wife the whole saga, the reason for their late night visit.
4: We just don't know what to do, you know. So she says, call your husband. And then we sit down. She basically says like this, your parents... Are the survivors that work so hard that their dream is you become a greatest ophthalmologist. And if this Hawaii trip to going to Tripler Medical Center become ophthalmology, then you should carry their dream. Rather staying here, you should go. You know, you should go. And Hashem, in his ultimate mercy, before anybody passes, Hashem shows to a person the entire their life like a film. And all the, the questions you had, why, 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 you know? All this stuff is going to be all answered. And then they will see from the beginning to the end. And then one day they will see your valued spora. Don't worry. Hashem will take care of them. Don't worry. Move on. Move on. Because Hashem will make a peace with your father on the day of his leaving this world.
3: The Rebetzin then handed them a piece of paper and asked them to write a little note together.
4: It's called a kvito, like uh, all the wish lists, what you need to be fixed, need to be answered, need to be Yoshua. So you write it all that down and give it to me. Tomorrow morning, when Rebbe start davening, I'll slip this into his talus. That's what she said. And then you should go with the peace. As soon as we come home, like it was already at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning, and we fell asleep. And uh, 7 o'clock, phone rings, and uh, Moshe got up and then answered the phone. It was his sister. His sister says, Moshe, Moshe, you gotta run to the hospital right now. Daddy had a um, chemotherapy and he's hallucinating and he is calling everybody Nazi. Moshe, you gotta run.
3: Moshe sprinted to the hospital where he found his belligerent father being restrained in a straitjacket.
4: My husband says to his father, Daddy, what's going on? You know? He said, Why did you come here? You're not my son. You got what you want? Get away from me. Like that. Like very angry. So Moshe started hugging him and then touching him and then saying to him, maybe I'm not your son, but you're my father. You're my teacher. You know, they started hugging and crying. And he spent 16 hours that day, made a peace with his father. Wow. This is the right after the bracha. She probably slipped in. Now, I'm telling you, just overnight, overnight, all our problems kind of, kind of solved.
3: Moshe's dad died several weeks later. They had, by then, already relocated to Hawaii, where they lived for the next year, and where Tsipora gave birth to their first child. In many ways, the Rabbitsons' blessings came true. These were very happy years for them. But all along, Tsipora carried a certain sadness within her. Not for a second did she forget about her two children back in Korea, being raised by an ex-husband who wouldn't let them even speak to her. And as time passed, the longing just grew.
4: It was time for me to really, you know, have my kids to know where I am. Who am I now?
3: (laughs) So, following his wife's request, Moshe asked to be transferred to Yongsan Garrison Military Hospital near Seoul. They rented a big house near the base, and before they had even landed in Korea, Tsipo's mother and three of her unmarried sisters had already moved in.
4: Moshe says, why are they here? What are they they doing? My mother is that kind of uh, person. She thinks this is the right thing to do. I'm moving in. But it was a disguised blessing because I had a built-in babysitter.s I have three sisters, my mother, five women, one of my sisters, a uh, flautist, her classic music is a ringing entire day in the house. And the Shabbos, everything shut down. And then now we're singing for Shabbos, you know, Davnings and Kiddush and everything.
3: But one thing was missing from this picture of familial joy. Zipporah's children...
4: There was a lot of lush and Slander,
3: bad-mouthing,
4: evil gossip. A lot of lush and And they were very scared to meet me because they were scared of the father. Because there was a lot of threats, you know.
3: It took months, even years. But slowly, patiently, Tsipora forged a new connection with her kids. First with her daughter, and then eventually with her son as well. It took a long time for him to come around. By the time she left Korea, Zipora and Moshe, who now had two kids of their own, would regularly host her whole Korean family, the kids from the previous marriage, her mother and all her sisters, for Shabbat
4: meals. When we were leaving, my mother said, I wish I had a Shabbos because how wonderful that you don't have to worry about money the answering the phone all that cut out and just focus in family together the food is already ready and you have a guest and you're relaxed it's a different pace shabbat shalom and and rest so my mother told my husband i wish i had a Shabbos."
3: Tsipora probably would have stayed in Korea, enjoying the best of both worlds. But just as Moshe had followed her, she knew that it was now her turn to follow him. They returned to the States, to Lakewood, New Jersey, to be closer to Moshe's aging mother. Despite the deathbed reconciliation between Moshe and her late husband, Despite two new grandchildren, she had never truly come to terms with the marriage, with Tsipoa.
4: My mother you was know, so stubborn. She comes to my uh, sharpest table, She would not touch my food for whole 10 years.
3: But here, too, patience paid off. Tsipoa eventually found a path to her mother-in-law's heart through her cooking.
4: I made a special... Uh, Shabbos fish, white fish with a spicy, and it's a whole fish. And then I'm telling you, she loved it. We still talk about it. She has a like grave of bones <laughs> and a t- plate. She loved it.
3: Meanwhile, Moshe started a private practice. Tipora ran the business. He always said, I'm working for my wife. And business was, O Hashem, going well. Soon they were expanding.
4: Thirteen offices.
3: All in all, life shined on Zipporah. Three decades earlier, she had left Seoul in shame and tears, hoping to make something of her life. And she did. Zipporah was successful in love, in business, and was blessed with a warm and loving family. But still, after all these years, she felt a lingering sense of restlessness.
4: Whenever I go to Israel, I just felt so complete. So I told my husband, we have to live in Eretz You know, we have to live in Eretz Israel. This is where we have to root here, with our family. So in
3: 1996, Zipporah and Moshe once again picked up and moved, this time to Jerusalem's old city.
4: The oldest city is the heart of hearts. You want to do anything? Old city. That's where the world was created. Adam and Chaba was created. That was where Abraham sacrificed Yitzchak. Everything came from there.
3: Zippo had ridden life from Korea to Vegas, to Hawaii, to Lakewood, and finally to Jerusalem. And that journey changed her profoundly. I mean, today she is a devout Kharidi woman who wakes up at 4 a.m. to go daven at the Kotel. But in other ways, significant ways, She's still Bungja from Seoul. See, there's always been one thing she simply couldn't leave behind. Her food. And now that she was in the Holy City, now that she had arrived at her final destination, she had one last dream to fulfill.
4: I made my mind. From now on, I'm going to work for my dream. Make a kosher Korean Food. Oh, this was my dream for 40 years. I've been cooking kosher Korean food all my life because I could never leave my food. I can leave my land. I can leave my family. I couldn't leave my food. I always made my own kimchi. And uh, my husband loves my food. He said one of the reasons he got married to me is because of my food.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So Tsipora decided that Moshe shouldn't be the only one who gets to enjoy her kosher Korean cuisine. She opened a
4: restaurant in the old city. Seoul House. And a food company. The food company is Coco, kosher Korean. So now my stuff is on, on Amazon. Coco ships
3: glut kosher Korean dishes, like fermented soy sauce, kimchi. Kimchi. Gochujang.
4: Gochujang.
3: Kachugaru. Gochugaru. And doenjang, doenjang, All around the world.
4: My food is authentic, natural, healthy food. That's what I'm interested in.
3: When Tzipora talks about cocoa, her restaurant, the fermentation workshops she leads, or the virtues of kimchi... Really,
4: the, ultimately what I want is I want to uh, grow the, the kimchi vegetables, what I need, here in Israel.
3: She has this glint in her eye. I can't help thinking that for her it's about much more than just the food. It stands for something bigger. It represents the merging of her two different identities and cultures. The one she was born into, and the one she chose. It's her way of being both Pungja, the phoenix, and Tsipoa, the Hebrew bird.
2: Yochai Metal. We'll be right back. For some people, such as Talia Ronsky, life is a meal. It starts off with exciting little tastes, it progresses to heavy dishes and main courses, and it's resolved ultimately with the sweet flavor of wanting more.
5: Somehow through my taste buds, I became in touch with myself. I don't even know, I'm a big foodie and I cook a lot. And there was something about the food that brought me back into the brotherhood of people, you know, into, like, humanness. Hi, I'm Talia Yaronsky, living in Jerusalem uh, for these past six years, originally from Brooklyn, New York.
2: Act two, soul food. And this time it's soul, S-O-L-E. Here's Zev Levi with an unusual seven-course meal.
1: First course, the hors d'oeuvres.
5: I met Tal, the man that I would marry, at a friend's wedding. So I remember it was a weekend wedding upstate New York in a beautiful place called Germantown, and they had rented out this area that was really beautiful and overlooking the river. There's a kind of like exhale that you do, and you get to these places that are green and overlooking the water. And it's just like you're in nature, and there are stars, and there are fireflies at night. You, You really feel yourself being able to relax. It started with like a 5.30 a.m. boat ride. (laughs) 5.30 in the morning, tired, groggy, not wearing makeup, wearing my glasses and my Crocs, you know, not my like, let's meet the menfolk attire. But it happens when it happens got really cold and we started chatting and then we got a blanket you know and then i remember the boat shifted and i almost fell overboard and tal saved me it was like a very classic almost titanic moment i literally almost fell overboard he grabbed my arm and it was like that manly you know i will protect you from the currents and i remember that was one of the things that like made a little you know a little switch in my head that said ah there might be a future here it was almost like a Tarzan who, like, came swinging through the vine and popped into my life. And, and there was a before and then there was an after. But yeah, that's really, in my memory, how how we got started.
1: Second course, The Appetizer.
5: We had a great wedding. We got married at the Israel Museum. Tal is an artist and I am a uh, a fan of the arts. You had a lot of Tal's artist friends who were more secular, and then you had my more hippy, dippy, orthodox friends, and it really was a mix of people at the Israel Museum and overlooking the Knesset, and there just was something very Jerusalem and very special about it. It was really good food. Remember they had like Jackson Pollock dessert, you know, with kind of different glazes of things, like splattered paint. Um, It was a real labor of love, our wedding, like, I don't know, just a lot of personality and personhood went into it. Um, So, something I hadn't been familiar with growing up as a good yeshiva, you know, bacharet in Flappish, but I remember Tal thought that, like, one thing that you had to have at your wedding, along with Arak and different things, was like a little, not even so little, a glass bowl full of joints so that people could just, you know, partake of the uh, Ketorette incense libation. So (laughs) there was also that, a little bit of something for everyone. (laughs) Towards the end of the wedding, I was, you know, going around to different groups of people and thanking them for coming. And I remember smelling the pot. And I just was happy that people were enjoying themselves and just seeing people smoking up and kicking back and relaxing. Like, you know it's a good sign when Tel Aviv people stay in Jerusalem longer than they have to. You know that's a good sign.
1: Third course, the drumsticks.
5: I remember the chicken drumsticks that told me that I was married. You don't realize until after your wedding how famished you are. We got married Friday morning. I remember they packed for us some food and we came home and it was like already almost of Shabbos. And I remember when we came home and we were so hungry. I remember us standing barefoot in our kitchen, just two famished people opening up Tupperware and whatever was next, that's what we were eating. And one hand we're holding drumsticks and then we're also eating baklava, beef carpaccio, salmon Wellington. And we were like laughing and talking together in the kitchen as the siren was going off in Jerusalem and Shabbos was coming in.
1: Fourth course, the soup.
5: I remember the kube soup that was a turning point in our marriage. We got married June 6th, and about a month and a half later, we were hosting a bunch of my friends who were in town for the summer, and we're hosting them for Friday night. We lived in Baca on like a first floor in this beautiful apartment and it had a really, really nice big backyard and we had a long table. I mean, it felt like some scene out of like a Tuscan movie where, you know, you have your friends and you're eating under the archways and everything is so beautiful and you have the smell of jasmine in the air. I remember being in the middle of the meal. We had all these friends over and it was so great and I had my hair covering and all that. And then in the middle of the kuba soup, like, I remember realizing that Tal wasn't looking at me anymore. Um, between Tal and I, this big rift was growing, and it all happened that night. I remember suddenly, like, almost like my stomach dropping. Like, suddenly I felt it. Like, wait, 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 what happened? What happened? Why is he ignoring me now? It almost felt like a trapdoor in a play. Like, you know, when you have those trapdoors in a stage floor, and people suddenly can, like, disappear. That's what it felt like. That particular soup, I remember Tom made it. It was beet soup, and it's this gorgeous, rich red, pink, fuchsia color. It's really a beautiful soup. I just always remember that it was such a chaval, that it was such a shame that we had spent so much time preparing a dish for guests, and then the meal gets ruined. I mean, I did put on a brave face, so it didn't get ruined for other guests, but like half of my head is like entertaining our guests and happy that they're there. And the other half is like ransacking my brain and like almost like spooling the tape back to think, what did I say? And did I say something off to Tal? I remember like, I couldn't, like where where was the dog buried? Like where was the thing that had happened? I remember thinking, um, this isn't healthy but look, we're still living together and sharing a bedroom and he's not talking to me. And if he wasn't talking to me, he wasn't talking to me. You know, it started off with like two days. I was thinking like, did I have an affair in the middle of the night and not realize? And then it kind of like progressed through one Shabbat where we are both in the house and he's not talking to me. It almost was like my existence became smaller and smaller and smaller. And I can't describe it. Your whole life is consumed by them being upset with you and you don't understand why. And then you take it so much to heart and you're so you're so kind of like thrown off kilter that it just sucks all the life force out of you. And it's hard to make clear decisions um, when that's going on. It had gone on for so long, I remember at a certain point not being able to be in the house with Tal any longer. And he didn't talk to me literally for two weeks. I mean, how did he suddenly start talking to me? I don't know. There was never any apology. So I never had a warning sign that it was coming. He would just suddenly start talking. And I remember that's when he shared with me that it was the kuba soup. He had set the table with like disposable napkins and paper plates. And because we were having hot soup, I switched out the plastic spoons and I replaced them with uh, metal spoons. He felt that I had canceled him. Remember, that's how he phrased it. And I had overridden his decision and switched out the plastic for the metal spoons. And there was something very um, emasculating to him or something, I don't even know. It was so, in my mind, trivial that even if I would try to be, like, the better wifey, I couldn't even predict that. Like, clearly I wouldn't switch out the spoons again, but, like, you know, those aren't the kind of things that you could, like, plan for. You know, a newlywed couple to not speak. To not speak for two weeks. It just felt like senseless torture. It's embarrassing to share, you know... These like on the one hand of course clearly you'd get sympathy, but it's embarrassing to share what's been going on because you feel somewhat complicit. And yeah, I remember there just was something about that experience that it was like I remember knowing that it could never it could never happen again.
1: Fifth course the egg.
5: I remember the boiled egg that told me I was really alone. When I left Tal, I left with the clothing on my back. Like borrowed underwear, borrowed pajamas, borrowed Shabbos clothing. My body was so in fight or flight mode. And a friend of mine offered to stay in her apartment. I remember her saying to me, I want to nourish you. I want to nourish you. But I think that was just how she saw herself, but not actually the person that she was. And she didn't actually nourish me and didn't give me any food. And it sounds so stupid, but the amount of energy to like just feed myself was so great to be like, Tali, you know, it's already 4 p.m. and you haven't eaten anything and you need to eat. I had just enough energy to like boil an egg. You know, there's something very echai about it, there's something very mournful. Like it's like the most basic food, it's round. You just eat it, you know? I was gonna be eating a boiled egg and I put it right before I took a shower. And I remember when I came out, I saw my friend, the same one who said she wanted to nourish me. I saw her like eating the egg and like the shells were on the counter. And I remember just thinking, I I hadn't really, I would barely even been eating. I wasn't really eating and I wasn't really sleeping. And she was eating my egg, it's as if she had taken it out of my mouth, I can't describe it. Um, Yeah, so I didn't stay there too long. And I started moving from place to place, staying in different places for two weeks at a time.
1: Sixth course: the lamb biryani.
5: I remember the lamb biryani that made me feel human again. I went to meet a friend on Emek Rafaim Street in Jerusalem, and there's um, a really good wine shop there. While I was there, I met this Indian guy um, named Urban Prabhu. And he could just sense that there was something wrong, that something tumultuous had happened in my life. And I remember him saying then and there, I want to cook for you. And I was like, what? And he was like, yes, let me cook for you. And in the beginning, it was like, oh, he's a guy. and Does he want sex? Does he want some kind of quid pro quo? And what, you know, who who is this character? But I was in such a desperate state that like, I was almost like a machine. Like I didn't even have enough energy to fully explore it. Meaning I was moving like a zillion miles a minute trying to like, new job and I need a place to live. And I need to get a get. And there was like so much craziness going on that when he first made the offer, okay, maybe. You know, when he said, I'll see you here tomorrow in the shop. I think it was like a Tuesday. I'll see you here Wednesday at 8 p.m. I'm like, ich weiß, fine, you know, I don't know. I remember actually showing up, um, but not knowing if he would show up. And there he was. And I remember being very moved by not only did he have all this food for me, but he left right after. He didn't linger. It wasn't, now I'll walk you home, or because I gave you food, I can now ask you personal questions. There was no weirdness. He gave me the food, said goodnight, said I'll see you in two days, and left. And I remember coming home, the apartment was very sparsely furnished. No one had lived there in a while, so there were broken panes of glass. And I'm like, in this apartment, shivering. And the food was so good. Different spices that I'm used to, it's curry leaves. It was just so yummy. So biryani is like rice and vegetables and lamb. And then there was also like a pickled, sour, sweet, mango thing, and then there would be the tamarind winter soup, like the soup that his grandmother made in the winter. There was something about it that almost like, almost thawed me back into like humanity. Like my senses weren't just fear, panic, safety, survival. I suddenly had mango and tart and spicy and knew, like somehow through my taste buds, I became in touch with myself again. And that became our ritual. I would see him every two days and I would return the empty containers and he would give me new ones. This food drops like from the stork into my apartment. It really felt like mana. Like it really just felt so heaven sent that it didn't feel weird to take it. And no matter how crazy my days were, My clothing is still in garbage bags. I'm moving from house to house. But in the evening, I always knew that one meal a day, I would have a home-cooked meal. And it was so nourishing.
1: Seventh and final course, the Lachma Bejin.
5: I remember the Lachma Bajin that told me that I was home and I was safe and not going anywhere. So the Parsha where in I left Tal was Parshat Vayetzeh, you know, and he left. And from the first anniversary on, every year I hold a Sudat Hodaya. I have like a meal of Thanksgiving. So I always save up like good recipes and it really is a feast. And this past year, I found a recipe for uh, Lachma Bajin b'ajin is meat with bread, that's what it literally means. It's almost like a meat pie, it's almost like a pizza, only instead of like dairy pizza you have meat. But it's meat flavored with pomegranate molasses and tamarind and onion that's chopped really finely and then, you know, with, uh, you also have parsley in there and it's like a sweet, tart meat ragu almost and then you top it with pine nuts and I made my own bread and then I served it with trina with sumac. Sumac is like a red berry. It reminded me of Pesach where you say like, you know, halach ma'anya, this is the bread of my affliction. I remember thinking like, it's not just the bread of my affliction, like when I left, it really was like an exodus and it was b'chipazan and I left really quick. I didn't even have a contact lens case. And this time I am holding up bread, but it's like high-end bread. It's spelt that I had time to make. And I had been cooking for two days, getting this whole, all the different dishes ready. And that really shows that like, right, I wasn't still running away. Nothing says being settled, like having two days to cook for a feast. There's something about sitting together at a meal that's the direct opposite of running out of a house. And there was something about the food that brought me back into the brotherhood of people, you know, into, like, humanness.
2: Zev Levi. We reached out, of course, to Tal, Tali's ex-husband, who preferred not to talk about their relationship. Yochai Metal and Zev Levi scored in sound design this episode, with original music and music from Blue Dot Sessions. Sela Weisblum mixed it all up. Thanks to Nivash Kenazi, Oren Harmon, Dahlia Weil, Erwin Prabhu, Wayne Hoffman, Esther Werdiger, Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick, Jeff Fagan, Joy Levitt. You can catch up on all our past episodes on our site, IsraelStory.org, or by searching for Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Lastly, if you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at IsraelStory.org. Our staff includes Yochai Metal, Zev Levi, Yoshi Fields, Skyler Inman, Nomi Schneider, Adina Karpuch, Ellie Blyer, Sharon Rapaport, and Rotem Zin. Sonia Eppelbaum, Laura Kapeliusznik, Tanya Huired, and Matthew Littman are our wonderful production interns. Jeff Umbro and Jesse Adler from the Pogglomerate are our marketing team. Amishi Harman and we'll be back next time with a brand new Israel Story episode so till then shalom shalom and yalla Sol, is this your food
0: <laughs> what, do you, do you, what do you want
2: Sol, do you want to sing a song let's sing a song together
0: bye bye F, D, it's and V, W, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. My, no my A, B, C. Nick, my no my